This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritpana Padkiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Christopher Donoghue. Christopher Donoghue is an associate professor of sociology at Montclair State University in New Jersey, where he also directs the master's program in social research and analysis. He earned his PhD in sociology at Fordham University in New York. Christopher is the editor of a new book entitled The Sociology of Bullying, Power, Status and Aggression Among Adolescents, published by NYU Press and the co-author of Statistics, a tool for social research and data analysis, 11th edition with Joseph Healy, published by Cengage. His research on bullying among adolescents has been published in many journals in the social sciences. Today, we are going to be talking about his new book, The Sociology of Bullying. Christopher, I'm glad to have you with us. Welcome to this interview. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Right. So let me begin by asking you how the sociological understanding of bullying has emerged and if a sociological analysis of bullying challenges the stereotypes that exist around it, as well as if it differs from psychological understandings. Well, thank you, Rita Parna. The study of bullying has really grown since the 1970s, mostly in the field of psychology. In psychology, a great deal of research has grown around Dan Alvaeus's definition of bullying, which defined it as a repeated act of aggression by one person or group against another group in which a power differential exists, where the one person or group has power over the other. In sociology, research has, there's been a lot of research generally about aggression, especially among adolescents, but not specifically on bullying. In psychology, there's a greater emphasis on the individual traits and characteristics that are associated with being a bully or a victim in a bullying incident. In, psycho- in sociology, there's greater interest in the different factors in society or in a culture or in an institution like a school that might be more or less conducive to bullying. So unlike psycho- psychologists that think uh, more about the individual, sociologists are d- take a little bit of more of a, a macro approach generally, and there's less uh, sociological research specifically on bullying in favor of other forms on more general kinds of, of aggression. 
All right. So sorry, I muted myself, and then I was speaking with the muted mic. Um, oh, it's okay. Yeah. So uh, I would also want to know how bullying is different from scapegoating. Oh, how it's different from scapegoating? Well, in in our book, there's a chapter by Randall Collins that distinguishes bullying from a variety of different types of aggressive acts. Now, scapegoating might might look a lot like bullying because it, when it's carried out in a, in a grand scale, it really in, involves a, a really large group that takes out aggression on just one individual who's going to take a blame for something or someone that's going to represent something that the group doesn't favor. And in our, our book, Collins is distinguishing that from a repeated situation in which a stronger individual uh, constantly takes takes out aggression over a weaker individual. So it's pretty close, but Collins is very interested in making the fine distinctions between uh, w- what specifically is bullying and what are other acts of aggression. Right. So in your book, you also talk about schools and neighborhoods and how they act as social systems that actually incentivize behaviors in promoting bullying. So if you could talk a little bit about it with a few examples, that would be really great. Well, this is really what what sociology brings to the table about bullying is this focus on larger groups. In psychology, there is a leading theory on bullying called the social ecological perspective, which does take into account more than just the individuals involved in a bullying situation, but also the environment. But yet most research on that theory focuses on the individuals anyway, and there isn't as much attention paid to the environment and the culture. In sociology, we're interested in the the different sentiments and norms and values that can make bullying more likely or less likely to occur in any given environment. So the interesting thing about this is really that there are some conditions that can make bullying more prevalent and some that can make make it less prevalent in a culture. A you know a group of a group of kids. Uh, aren't only influenced by the macro factors around them, they can actually influence their own environments by endorsing or not endorsing aggressive or non-aggressive behaviors. And that can lead to lower levels of bullying, but it can also lead to higher levels of bullying as well. Right. So do you also think that there is an interplay of a bullying strategy as well as reward? Sociologists are interested in the status competitions that adolescents engage in, and really they're not different than what adults do in in many competitive environments. Oftentimes, people who are in a competitive environment either willfully or sometimes subconsciously take actions or whether they're uh, active forms of aggression or passive aggression that can raise their standing with their peers or make themselves look better. Uh, And sometimes that's at the expense of others. And so there is this uh, strategy component where sometimes there's a calculus that people make that will 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 make them feel that they can uh, raise their standing if they they act 
uh, in defiance against another group. And sometimes they feel forced into it as well. There are some children that report bullying others, but they did it because they felt compelled to do so or forced to do so by stronger peers around them. So in other words, they're sort of bullied into bullying others. Right. So uh, speaking of, of course, strategy, reward and bullying, uh, there is also a section in which you talk about the interconnections between bullying and social identities of race, class and gender. So if you could explain it again with a few examples that you use in your book, I think it would be very uh, helpful for our listeners. Sure. Bullying in schools often focuses on what we call just different forms of of differentness, whether the differentness be by race, class, uh, gender, sexuality. Oftentimes, we think about a group that is different from others getting singled out and uh, sort of punished for not being like the others. But in a way, it's really a form of socialization, not necessarily um, adaptive socialization or something that um, we would embrace, but it's a form of socialization in that uh, racial groups um, and also by categories, again, like gender and sexuality, often pressure one another to conform to the norms of the group. So as a way of enacting pressure, they'll, they'll aggressively tell them what are the behaviors that are acceptable for their group and what are not. So it's really hard to be different because if you're not conforming to those uh, expectations, you'll often find um, that children will be uh, the victims of different kinds of aggression. Right. So you talk about a difference, right, and differentiation. And of course, sexuality as well. And uh, I would want to know more about this relationship between bullying and homophobia that, you know, uh, comes out in your book. Mm. Well, homophobia is a, a reason for bullying that we, we, we pay a lot of attention to. Interestingly, there's, um, you may know the book by C.J. Pascoe, uh, Dude, You're a Fag. Pasco writes a chapter in this book where she focuses on two different ethnographies that she conducted uh, many years apart. One in which she found that this is, say, 15 or 20 years ago, there was a high level of what, what she called interactional homophobia. This is where uh, people are, are very overtly in their speech against people who are not heterosexual. Interestingly, in her more recent ethnography, she finds something she calls institutional heteronormativity. Now, in this case, you don't have that overt form of homophobia, but what you have is a favoring of heterosexuality. And in a heteronormative environment, it can be very oppressive to children that don't conform to that. So children that do not see themselves as fitting the heteronormative mold can often feel out of place. They can also be uh, victims of, of aggression and bullying. So in, in this work, really, we, we question, have we really improved the situation for young children? We, we may not have that overt sense anymore 
as strongly as we did uh, against homosexuality, but this uh, this pressure to conform to heteronormative values, as I said, can be oppressive. Hmm, right. And of course, uh, like schools and neighborhoods, the role of the media also becomes important when we talk about bullying. So what would you think is the role of the media in representing bullying or maybe in even, you know, incentivizing it? Well, in popular forms of media, we usually see the stereotypes about bullying that focus on those reasons why some children are thought to be bullies. Uh, why are they aggressive? They, they have some history of family abuse, or they've been victims themselves, or they're carrying out their anger against other children. Uh, they're, they're, they're taking it out on other people. Now, even though we might think that we know cases like these and the idea might resonate with us, it's a bit stereotypical and it pays little attention to the conditions in the social environment that make bullying more or less likely to occur. So some examples I gave before are an environment of heteronormativity or cis-normativity that can make some feel group, uh, some, some children in a school feel empowered because they match up with the norms and others that don't. And that really can be invisible when we look at a school. We don't necessarily see the favoring of, of, a, of, a, uh, of sexual preference, for example. But it's embedded sometimes in a school culture and children feel it, whether they're in the dominant group because they feel like their values are accepted by others or if they're in the minority group because they feel left out and they feel like others either don't like them or want them to change or, or just, just have a distaste for them. Right. So uh, do you think that there is also a specific role that social media plays in this representation since we are, we are living in the times of social media? Well, I think interestingly, we, 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 we spend a lot of time thinking about how young people use social media in secretive ways, uh, sometimes by using different forms of messaging that only certain others of their peers can receive. And that could be a form of bullying where they'll, they'll take out aggression on them. But interestingly, it's very public as well. So we know many politicians and public figures that use social media networks for bullying. Children do that as well. But the children can often do it in ways that are public, but yet only the members of their own group will understand. Uh, so for example, they can do that by spreading memes that are targeted, oddly specific, oddly specific to some particular situation or some person that they want to aggress against. So they use the social media channel to, to do this in a very public way, and yet only some people will understand the damage that's being done, or the person might, who is the victim uh, might feel the damage, even though others might not even quite understand that it was an act of bullying. Right. So this also makes me actually wonder that if you think there are challenges associated with measuring bullying, you know, uh, what do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned the definition earlier, and most surveys tend to use that definition or something like it. But research suggests that children don't don't buy into the exact definition that we use. So there's confusion sometimes around which group or which person is more powerful than the other. How do we define power? And acts of aggression can be very active or they can be very passive. In the example of those memes, oftentimes they feel very open to interpretation. So as a victim, you might experience a lot of harm because of them. Or the people in your your group or your school might understand it as an act of aggression against you. But yet when adults, administrators, teachers in a school evaluate what has taken place, it may or may not look like an act of aggression. So it's challenging really to figure out how to identify what bullying is and when it should be punishable and how. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. So uh, in the book, there is also mention about anti-bullying programs. So uh, if you could throw some light on what they mean and how they are carried out in terms of, you know, uh, measuring bullying as well as, of course, thwarting bullying. Well, on their surface, anti-bullying programs tend to take that uh, that social ecological perspective to heart, as I mentioned earlier, and they use what we call a whole school approach. It means you look at the entire environment, not just the, the you, you train not just the children, but you train the teachers, the administrators, the parents, the community. But that said, just getting their involvement is often not enough to change bullying behaviors. Many anti-bullying programs adopt something like an anti-bullying ethos. It's a practice in the school or a belief system that they they try to indoctrinate among the children. And the the ethos is can be effective, uh, but it can only be so effective because if it doesn't ring true in practice to the children, it may not be feasible for them to to live by. In other words, just saying no to bullying might not be strong enough. There are some important things that we can change in our social environments, like the favoring of particular groups that can make bullying more or less likely to occur. And that may be a stronger place to start than trying to act, ask children to just act on their own and uh, just stand up and stop bullying others. It, it may take more uh, substantive change in a social environment for that really to take place. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so, uh, again, going back to the sociological part of bullying, and the book goes or rather moves beyond an individualistic approach. So, uh, this question came to my mind that, you know, what are some of the methods or ways in which the contributors have 
gone beyond this individualistic approach if you could throw some light on that mm. well there are multiple chapters chapters that focus on culture and i, I think one good example uh, to bring out here would be one that's used in Hannah Shepard's chapter. Hannah is interested in the way that young people change one another's behaviors and values by the way that they speak and the way that they accept or don't accept the actions of their peers. Now, this kind of runs counter to our normal expectation that if a school puts in place something like the ethos, like I described before, or something that is against bullying, that maybe it will have an effect on the children. Or even if you were to look at uh, look at it from the other point of view, if you were to say that if there's a culture from the larger environment that's supportive of bullying, that it can influence children. Well, Shepard takes the view that children also have that power to change their culture. And she points out in some of her work, some schools that have actually adopted anti-bullying behaviors and uh, norms within their own school. So they were able to influence the culture sort of like a grassroots change from the bottom up. And that's something that sociologists are probably more interested in and hopefully will continue to do research on. It's different than most of the bullying research that exists that focused more specifically on interact on on individual characteristics. Mm, right. So uh, you know, again, uh, because it's such a new area of research for sociologists, and there is limited work on it, I must ask you this. Probably, I should have at the beginning of the interview itself, but then I guess even now is not uh, too late uh, what was the inspiration behind you know bringing this volume together as well as being interested in this area of research well to be clear bullying research is very popular and there are many many volumes of research on bullying there is not a lot of research however in the field of sociology so in my earlier work, I did I worked specifically with schools on anti-bullying consultations. And in my research, I focused on topics that were being covered in the literature, namely the way that children define bullying and how they cope with it. But there weren't many avenues to publish that in sociology because in sociology there seems to be a tendency to avoid the term to avoid the term bullying altogether in favor of research on generalized aggression now some people think in sociology that we we prefer to not focus so narrowly on this one type of aggression because all forms of aggression are important and we should be aiming to reduce them all and there's merit to that argument, of course. The authors in the book, however, are taking the view that in sociology, we need to more fully embrace the idea that bullying is important to people. And it, ha it takes very real meaning to people. Then they need a language to describe it. So think about the frustration that parents and children's face when ch parents and children face when they report an act of aggression at their school and they're told by the school that it doesn't fit a very specific definition of bullying. The, 
the act is bullying to them. That's the term that their their peers use and that's used in our society. So I think it's important for sociologists to help fill in what we need to know about bullying so that there's a sociological perspective, a macro perspective on the topic as well. If the, if the term is important to people, then sociologists should be playing a role in shaping the conversation on it. Right. So because you talk about the sociological understanding of bullying and the point that you made that there was research on it, but not a by sociologist or maybe the avenues were limited sociologically. So uh, continuing from the point that you made, do you think that sociological understanding should be the public understanding when it comes to bullying? I definitely think sociology should be part of the understanding. There's really not a need to to choose one discipline over another for the study of bullying. And we were clear on that in the book, that we were not trying to supplant what uh, the work that has been done in psychology. And in fact, in psychology, in the in the theoretical work, there is an understanding of the the importance of culture. But sociologists will take bullying as the unit of analysis itself, the act of bullying. We're interested in what leads bullying behaviors to take place in an environment, not so much what motivates some particular individual to be engaged in bullying. And that's an important perspective that we would like to see sociologists help to frame in the public debate on bullying and in school policies. Right. So uh, you talk about the role in policy making as well. So uh, because you have also said that you have worked as a consultant in schools, do you think that there are any suggestions that you can offer in terms of policies? Well, yes, sociologists are probably a little bit more equipped to help schools than to help individuals on a one to one basis. So oftentimes when people react to our work on bullying, they'll ask, What can I tell my child or what can my child do at school? Usually what I say in a situation like that is we probably need to do a better job of listening. We often discount child explanations for why aggressive acts take place. Sometimes it's because we're trying to fit their experience to our own or we're using stereotypes. And so... I often encourage adults to listen to children because they often know situations a lot better than we do. So that's one thing I offer to individuals. But sociologists can probably have the greatest impact on informing anti-bullying curricula in schools. To pay greater attention to the status competitions, for example, that take place, how children try to raise their social standing by aggressing against others but also ways in which we can try to dig away at the structural constraints that lead to forms of systemic bias towards particular ethnic or racial groups or dominant uh, sexual preference. Those types of beliefs can be in a school and that can really be oppressive to those that don't fit the norm. So that's really something that sociologists can heighten sensitivity to is our forms of bias that can be oppressive in school environments. Right. So last question, 
how do you see future future research in this area you know shaped do you think that there are other possibilities that sociologists can explore and in what capacity well research on bullying in sociology is growing and there is an increasing use of the term bullying rather than just aggression whereas previous the books and journal articles on this topic tended to avoid that term. You're seeing it more now in the literature. And I think specifically sociologists have a lot to add in anti-bullying policies, in understanding forms of systemic bias and culture, and just overall ways of changing a culture in a school. There are, there are many, there's a lot of room for change in culture that we don't necessarily recognize when we use our old ways of looking at things. We have a tendency to think that culture must change slowly and that we need time to accept differences, uh, whether there are differences by sexuality or in um, ways of looking at gender. So sociologists are are interested in finding ways of bringing about social change sometimes more quickly than the general public perhaps would prefer or expect. And I think that's an area that sociology can contribute to is these ways of understanding how a culture can change. Right. So thank you so much, Christopher. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and learning so much about the sociology of bullying. I would like to thank you on behalf of NBN as well for giving us the time and, uh, you know, space to talk about your upcoming book. And I wish the book all success. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much, too.